0: That has definitely been one of the hardest things i think probably mentally i've had to deal with like i had to go out and convince people that i can you know i can do the job
1: so how do we get young people excited about a career in property
0: fantastic podcast like this gareth this is this probably <laughs> the way to do it i think my dad thinks i'm still a mortgage broker um, <laughs> and i never was a mortgage broker
1: pathways to property which um, yeah you
0: know has been going a long time and fast forward this year, we're on a, our 11th summer school. Um, we've had nearly over a 1,000 students come through, uh, of which about 25% are either working or studying in problems. I'm not here to make you look bad. In fact, if anything, I should be making you look better. I have this book, which is just full of business plans. And to be honest with you, most of them, 99% of them are, I wouldn't say rubbish, but they're never going to go anywhere.
1: What's the hardest change that you've been through in your life?
0: The, the toughest bit of that is, is your ego, right? And it's the psychological bit. I felt like a failure. I I did feel like a failure for a long time and I was very, I was ashamed of that.
1: Do you think we still have a problem in the industry with with the lack of diversity, particularly at senior level?
0: I think I've always been, I remember reading various reports from big consultancies back in the day, whatever, 2020, we will have 50% of our board will be female, 50% of our board will be non-white and you're like, okay, great. But you know, when you look at the the pool that they're going to get that from, it's not very diverse. So. They sort of set these targets pat themselves on the back and go and have lunch and but actually they're never going to meet them nobody wants to be given a job because they are they fit some diversity profile right you don't want to get a job because you're the only woman who you know uh, interviewed for it or you were the only brown guy who interviewed for it.
1: what's going to be your next big change hi paddy thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today um the same first question as always what's the hardest change that you've been through in your life
0: start with a uh, start with a little one um <laughs> well thanks for having me on I really appreciate it um I've got the hardest change. I've been listening to some of to the other podcasts and I've been having to think about this and I still don't have a, a definitive answer <laughs> <But> I think <laughs> I'm if I one of the one of the things I've done over the last few years is actually try and work out what I'm good at um, and change seems to be one of the things that I I tend to spend a lot of time doing. And I think if I look at all the jobs I've done in my career, um, I work most effectively in uh, environments where there's significant change happening. or well, there's a kind of high rate of growth. Um, I'm not very good in kind of ploddy type jobs where, you know, it's just do the same thing over and over again. So change for me is probably quite normal, um, uh, you know, compared to sort of other people, other people in other jobs. I think probably the the biggest change I can point to is actually going from being a kind of principal to being an advisor, like into this job I'm doing now. Um, That's definitely been one of the hardest things, I think, probably mentally I've had to deal with, like, you know, um, going from actually doing a job to then advising on the job. People would think, well, surely that's much easier. But actually, you know, I had to go out and convince people that I can you know i can do the job and i can do it before you were just doing it you didn't have to sell the fact that you could kind of do it um and you know i think you know trying to find where you sit in in people's processes and all of that kind of stuff was 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 hard and i think when people don't know you and don't know you as an advisor as well they know you as more of a kind of principal i think that's um that's always that was very difficult so i think i that's certainly been one of the biggest changes in more recent times for me getting comfortable with a different role. Um, and, but, you know, I like to think I'm kind of, I think I've kind of overcome that slightly now. I think it's a bit, it's just a question of time and confidence as much as anything. Um, but that's certainly one of the things that I've, I've gone through in the last last few years.
1: So for for people that don't know the main differences between being a principal and an advisor, what are they?
0: So I guess when when you're kind of the the principal you know you 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 are the the point person for you know for getting deals done and making things happen you know you are the uh you're the conductor of the orchestra really um and sometimes you play you play the different instruments as well um but it's the it's your responsibility you know you're the you're the person going out and doing it so in the roles I done previously you know I, I worked in fund management so you know I was a portfolio manager a fund manager so you know I, I had responsibility for managing the performance of several funds um yeah and then in sort of you know other roles you know when I was with GSA um you know I was the the, the guy that got the d- deals done you know I had to liaise with um capital with you know with debt with uh, vendors with the operations teams all of those kind of things I think when you're an advisor you are you have to work out where your where your value add is. You have to be able to work alongside other principals um, to help them and, and to to probably fill the gaps that they that they have. And sometimes the challenge of it is right is that I think sometimes they don't know where the gaps are <laughs> and you do. And you've got to work out a way that you say that really politely without kind of going, you know, you, without them feeling threatened. Um and, you know, that's always been my my thing and my sell to people, to our clients, is that I'm here to help. I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to make you look bad. In fact, if anything, I should be making you look better, you know, and that should be something that you want. And I'm always happy to stay in the background. I don't need the limelight, you know. Um, so, it's a, you know, going from being that, that person who's the one out there scoring the goals, probably to being the coach who sits at the back of the bench, <laughs> you know, is um, and it doesn't get on TV. V is, is the has been the biggest sort of shift i guess and and letting people know that you know that's you can help them rather than work against them
1: so when i was researching you for this episode um it took me a lot longer than i thought it was going to because uh, <laughs> you, do, you you've done quite <laughs> a bit in uh, in your career um so i, I was trying to uh, come up with a description but i'd be interested to know how you would describe yourself and the path your career has taken rather than just me asking you about every single job you've had <laughs>
0: um the best way to describe it uh my career is very non-linear I think it, you know I um I've always done what I have found interesting and what I'm good at you know I, I listened to your pod with um with Joe Persichino and you know I'm very similar to him in that sort of sense you know I I'm always growing and learning and sort of doing things that i enjoy and 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 i don't really follow a path that's you know and that's been that people would recognize as kind of more um ordinary um so yeah i that has always been my challenge if i'm honest with you that nobody really knows what i do or what box to put me into so you know i if i've ever met anyone to talk to them about jobs they go we really like you and you know it's really interesting but i have no idea what you do or what you could do for us and and you know sometimes that's a good thing more often than not it's a bit of a it's always been a challenge but you know I, i've grown over the years to accept that <laughs> that's kind of you know it kind of it's kind of fun as long as i you know and that's again comes probably comes back to the to what i do and what i'm good at which is working in environments where there is significant change happening or significant growth needed and there isn't a roadmap and people don't know what they should be doing and I, I can kind of come in and, and really kind of cut through and put a plan in place and and get things going. That's that's where I think, you know, businesses that I've worked for with and in my own businesses as well have kind of benefited from that sort of skill set.
1: So um if, you know, when I was looking at at what you'd done and and like you say, the businesses you'd worked for and been involved with and, and your own businesses, you look know, like you've been incredibly successful, Paddy. But there been many failures along the way.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, I work on the premise that um, I come up with lots of ideas. And um, if something sticks in my head overnight, then I write it down. If then I write it down and, and it's still there a week, a week later and I think, okay, that makes some sense, then it becomes a business plan. And so I have this book, which is just full of business plans. And to be honest with you, most of them, 99% of them are, I wouldn't say rubbish, but they're never going to go anywhere. <laughs> um, but it's the one that sticks there and constantly sticks in your mind that I often think, right, and that those are the things that have become something. So, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be part of, you know, uh, a number of sort of businesses of different sort of scales um you know i've started two of my own which have been fascinating um and you know one of them and i I wouldn't say failure is an interesting word right because i i kind of um i don't see any of them as a failure you know if some if you ask me Again, to would I would I go and start these businesses that I started, or go and work with these startups? I would never change my decisions. I think they, because I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't made those decisions and hadn't gone through the 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 tough times that we went through with that. Um, so whilst they might not want, you know, some of them might not have been financial successes, you know, in the kind of I I didn't I haven't bought a yacht yet you know, or a private jet, you know, if that's what we deem success is, then, then I have, I'm, I have failed miserably. Um, but, you know, the two businesses that I started um, with, with two uh, co-founders, one was a, a residential consultancy and another one was a tech firm, you know, did, did both of those businesses and do both of those businesses do what they initially said on the business plan? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> you know the, the initial ideas we had and both of them were started in pubs um which tells you a lot about me um you know the the initial business plans we have were not what came to fruition and and i think for various reasons and what are the ability to be able to pivot um and i hate that word because it's sort of overused but the ability to be able to kind of be introspective and go right this isn't working we need to change it what are we doing well what have been the positives? What have been the negatives? You know, what should we keep? What should we keep doing? What should we drop? That is, that is something you only learn from failure, um, and it's a really, really important skill. I found in any business, whether I'm working as part of a eighteen thousand person consultancy or I'm working as a three person tech startup, you know, um, the ability to kind of turn turn the mirror on yourself and look and say, right, this isn't working but this is working. So what do we do now? Uh, and to, to, you know, that, so that's certainly what I've I've learned. You know, my my first business was, the Resi Consultancy was like that. You know, I was um, trying to give advice to people on buying houses and it was a terrible idea because I, um, I, I had no experience as an estate agent, which is what you needed. I had no network of people who bought high value houses. I just wanted to do the right thing and to, to help people out. And what my challenge was is that everyone wanted my product. I, They wanted me to help them buy a house, but nobody wanted to pay for it. Um, and that was the fundamental question I forgot to ask when I was doing my market research. So, you know, I, I looked at that business and I said, right, okay, if I'm going to make this a success, I need to invest, you know, X hundred thousand pounds into it to go and buy the right relationships do the right marketing and all that and I was like am I going to see a return from this and I was like maybe am I passionate about it not really I really didn't enjoy buying houses for people it was you know it's just not me Um, but what I looked back and I went hold on a minute I've been talking to a lot of investors like you know um, family offices and institutional investors and maybe they, they, they need, they like what I do. And I actually seem to click with them and I talk their language. So maybe actually I just need to pivot my business slightly and do it for institutional investors and bigger investors rather than, you know, individuals and and people. And that was the kind of light bulb moment for me. So, you know, completely changed it. And that's what got me into student housing and, and everything else. So, um, Admitting failure on one part was what opened the door to another, um, which was which was great. So that's a very long answer to your question, Gareth. But
1: yeah, <laughs> and I think I think you're right. I think that's that's so hard when you've you know you've you've poured everything into a business and it's going to be in this direction and it doesn't work out, and then you have to sort of you know change when you've been you've been out there you know marketing publicising yourself saying what you do and then all of a sudden. Actually, I'm not going to do that because that's not really going to work. That's that's quite tough to do, isn't it? you know, maybe yeah. from a pride or ego point of view. <laughs>
0: oh, and I'll tell you, I mean, the, the bit that I've sold this to a few people, you know, the, the the toughest bit of that is is your ego, right? And it's the psychological bit, you know, is that I I felt like a failure. I, I did feel like a failure for a long time. And I was very I was ashamed of that. Um, you know, and, and especially when I you know, it got to a point where I had to go and get a job, right? Because I couldn't continue doing that. And that's the harsh reality of business. And nobody sees it. You do you you do sort of sit there and go, right, am I throwing good money after bad here? You know, is this is this gonna work? And and when I realized that if this probably I needed to think differently and, and to go and it probably was too early or it was a different wrong business plan or whatever, I, I shouldered that quite a bit and, and it was really I'd, I carried a lot of shame with that. And it was only, I talked to a really good friend of mine and I said to him one day after it had all kind of, I'd made the decision. I said, oh, I feel I feel like I've failed. And he said, mate, he said, you haven't at all. He said, you know, he said, people look at you and think, oh, I wish I could do that. Um, he said, you know, the fact that you've gone out there and tried it and it hasn't necessarily worked how you thought it would work um, is is an absolute positive. You know, there are so many people that wish they could even have the guts to go and do that and try that. And and that was a real game changing moment for me when I realized actually, do you know what I've been so harsh on myself here um that it hadn't worked in the way I thought it would work. But again, you know, look at it from a different perspective. I wouldn't have worked and done the jobs and met the amazing people that I have and be in this seat now if I hadn't have made those decisions and and done that. So um you just gotta be, you know, it takes these things take time, but and you've got to be sensible about it. But that was a real that percept the perception of it and kind of you know understanding my own ego and my own mentality was a real was a game-changing sort of moment in how you perceive failure
1: i uh i heard you say once that um whether it's positive or a negative thing about you you say yes to everything um are you still
0: like that yeah. I'm terrible. But ask anyone, <laughs> any, ask anyone who's worked with me. They, they hate it. Um, Cause I just, I'm always like, I have this kind of attitude Like I'm sure we could work it out. So I just say yes. And I'm like, I'm sure we'll work out. And you know, and, um, my, my colleagues have always said, that's the worst thing about working with me is I just take on all this stuff. And I'm, Part I think part of it is I'm. A, if you do those psychometric testing on me, I think I'm a people pleaser, um, which is something I'm trying to change actually. Because you know, I think I, I, it's it's a good thing as well as a bad thing, and very, probably more of a bad thing for me because I overcommit my time and um, something I sort of need to learn. But um, yeah, I, ju- I just always think there's a way, right? And 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 I try to communicate that as much. Sometimes there isn't, um, but you know, um, I'm not very siloed in my thinking and kind of binary about things i always sort of i quite like problem solving and sometimes the things that are bigger problems are the stuff that (laughs) that i get involved in so if everybody knows that about you what
1: don't they know about you what what would surprise people listening to this to know that they might not know about you paddy
0: good question um you know, probably not a lot. I'm kind of the the, the person I'm talking to. You know, the person I am at work is the person I am most of the time, all the time. You know, it's the. um My wife said this to me the other day. She said, she said there is a bit that people don't know about you. And I said, what's that? And she goes, well, uh, me and my son talk in different voices quite a lot. <laughs> she says there's a really dumb side. There's a really dumb side of me, which is really annoying to her in that, you know, we we just go around imitating each other. And there's a really like stupid side of me, which I think is probably a bit of a release at times. I, I'm I'm really keen to I don't take myself too seriously. Um which my mother always tells me is I should take myself more seriously, but I just I can't. Um I just you know I don't I don't think I'm that person. Um but yeah, I think uh it's a, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve really. Um I'm very passionate about the kind of things I do whether you know at, at home and, and and at work. Um I can I think I'd I'd run out of energy if I had to keep two personas up.
1: Um, um I, and I said I wasn't going to go through your career uh <laughs> because uh, you know th- that we would be here all day I think talking about all the different things you've done but the one bit that really interested me was Akasa and yes. starting that firm, um, well, I'll ask one question rather than asking lots. Where did the idea come from for Acasa?
0: Um, So again, this is the kind of serendipitous piece of starting a business. So I, I so going back a long sort of way, I, I was living in I lived in Holland for two years um, from 2010 to 2012, and I was uh, working for a fund manager dealing with um, a load of I was a fund manager of three Dutch. Um, portfolios of like offices, um, logistics, shopping centers, things like that. Uh, And we were working it out from the back of the GFC. Um, Anyway, I was selling a load of uh, offices to student investors and resi investors. I thought this is super interesting. And I came back to the UK in 2012. I tried to start, get the business I was working for to start a resi student fund. we worked on it for a bit didn't quite work um so then i made a rational decision like every rational person does to just quit my job and go and do it my own my own <laughs> i'm going to start a fund how difficult can that be in 2012 um and that's where i um set up the resi consultancy and I, I you know i tried to do the fund bit on the side the way to make money was i was buying houses for people um to just to bring some cash flow in but then you know i sort of needed to pivot it but one of them, one of the things I tried to do with that business, that consulting business, was to um, use research and insight and data as a um, as a differentiator, as like a competitive advantage. And, you know, I've always had this thing about research where, especially when I was working in fund management, you know, we used to get phoned up by these researchers and I'd tell them about the deals that we'd done and our fund performance. And then they'd put it in a thing and then tell it to me back and get me to buy it. And I was like, what? I never quite understood you know so i give you the data and then you sell it back to me you sell my own data back to me and i thought <laughs> i was like either i either i'm missing something here or there's got to be another way and I, you know and for me what i wanted in the investment world was somebody to tell me what they think might happen and i you know i'm not going to hold them to it but just have some sort of um understanding of what was going on so I used to pay a guy um, to write uh, write a load of research. Somebody who was much smarter than me used to pay him uh, to write some research, and then I'd brand it um, under my own brand. And I got... my mate who designed trainers, I think at the time was working for Nike, designed all my um, branding. And so we, we, I just put this research out there um, about the housing markets uh, and what was going on in the residential world. And it, it was just really cool branding and, you know, it was a little bit different and I wasn't afraid to say things that I thought and, you know, that were backed up by some data. Anyway, I, I, I started putting this out on social media um, and I got into this Twitter debate um, and in 2012 with some, uh, chap some american chap um who was you know debating with me about the london property market and we were having this back and forth on twitter and i said to him, look mate why don't we just meet for a coffee <laughs> where are you you know he <laughs> says because oh, i'm in london i'm at the open data institute i work for the open data the open data institute in london uh, and the Open Data Institute was a is an initiative I think it's still going between the government and Sir Tim Berners Lee, who's the guy who founded the World Wide Web. So I went down there and met this chap, Nick um, Nick Katz, and we were chatting and we just got on really well. Um, yeah, he's um, he's a, we're completely different, and I love people who are completely different from me because I, it sort of highlights my blind spots and you know I, I find I can have more interesting conversations with them and we We got chatting about London property we got chatting about what's going on in the data world and then we started talking in the open data Institute there was a load of other little they incubated different businesses and there was another business in there that was looking at building tools to help people find homes um, in the uh, you know in the London resi space and some super smart guys like the smartest guys you know you'll ever come across and they built this tool and nick and i were talking to them and i said wow this is amazing this is a fantastic tool um but nobody will ever buy it and then, what do you mean and i said well it's great you know but it's not worth anything to anyone right you know and they said well what would you do then and i was like well it was focused on the sort of transaction space and i thought well look, everyone's always trying to disintermediate estate agents and make transactions better and blah 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 and by that time I found a thing actually I was a bit bored of that there's just so many people sort of trying to do it and you know um, and it's a huge space right you know there's one and a half what was one and a half million transactions a year the market's worth loads it's really attractive but I can't tell you the amount of people who tried to get rid of Foxton's and they haven't succeeded (laughs) you know so I was like right how can you be a little bit different I said you know What would be really interesting is is finding a way to help people make better decisions in managing their homes. Um, Rather than the transactional piece, the management piece is much more interesting because people buy and sell homes on average every seven years. So we're working super hard to get a one-time income every seven years. I was like, and this was sort of coming out of um, running my consultancy, was one of the things that really was tough with the consultancy was cash flow. And it's the same with any business, right? And I was working in a high-value, low-volume environment. And I was like, oh, this is annoying. I don't, I, you know, I don't like this as a, as, as a personal business. And what I wanted to find was actually, what if we could do it the other way around? You know, high-volume, vol- high, high low-value. And the management space just struck me as something that you actually, you know, you could do that in. So we looked at datas, you know, how many data sets could we get? There's so much open data around you know, uh, how you run your homes, uh, energy consumption data, all this kind of stuff. And how could we put that against addresses so that when people are looking at buying and selling their homes, they can understand how those homes perform. Um, and then they can track that once they've bought the home. So it becomes a kind of recurring thing, right? And you gamify it. So people put their data in, they get back and all this. So we created this dashboard for the home, um, which was our big kind of, this is what it's going to look like. Um, But we needed a kind of what we called like a beachhead, really. We needed a product that was going to be the initial lynch to get in. So I fast forwarded a bit. The three of us decided to start this business. We built the business plan in a pub in Shoreditch. uh, And this was all while I was meant to be doing a consulting business. I got totally distracted. Um, And we found a couple of investors who gave us I mean, this is mad when you think about it. They gave us one hundred and fifty thousand pounds off the back of a twenty-page slide deck that we put together in a boozer off the back of Liverpool Street, Um, and we we got going, you know, building building this kind of minimum viable product, really. And the whole idea was actually just to make renting easier for people, so and make but making the management of renting easier. And we we our, our initial customers were going to be um peace sharers so share people who were sharing and they wanted to get more transparency around their finances so we thought fine let, why don't you just manage all your finances in a in a shared home through through our app and that was what became the product essentially um was a kind of online calculator with an e-wallet in that um that Integrated with local councils to pay council tax, utilities companies to pay utilities, and um, TV licensing and Sky and all these things, um, but also a f- way that people could pay each other back for groceries and drinks and all this kind of stuff. And that was that was kind of what took it off, really. And you know, fast forward a number of years, you know, the team there, Nick and Vass, who was the other co-founder, um, you know, they raised nearly 5 million pounds in venture capital money we had nationwide bank uh, nationwide ventures were our biggest investor i mean that we were the first investment for them for their venture capital arm um and it was an amazing amazing experience you know i i had to step back from the business um in 2015 ish because i needed to pay the rent if i'm honest and so i i I took a less active role but was very much sort of there with the guys the guys did a lot of the the big grunt work you know nick and bass and that but i'm super proud of what they achieved and what we achieved um you know because i think you know those early days when we were you know sitting in coffee shops and pubs and we hired this little cupboard of an office if i remember off curtain road um above a what a fancy dress shop or something for you know to, to to get it all started, um, where we had interns and coders and all this. And at one point, I think we had like fifteen people sitting in a like a live work unit, in short it's just coding away, building all this stuff. Um, yeah, it was amazing to be a part of that. I learned so much about tech. I learned a lot about um, how to raise money. I learned a lot about products. Um, I, I learned a lot about venture capital um you had to get businesses off the ground met some fascinating people um yeah I could probably write a book on it but Nick and Vas could probably write a better book on it but you know it's um yeah it was a fascinating experience it's something I kind of did on the side weirdly
1: (laughs) that's what struck me when you were talking there about how I was was doing this job whilst also doing this you know that sounds like more than a full-time job just uh just trying to get that off the ground
0: I'm a weird I'm a weird person I've always had like three jobs on the go since the age of about 12 um you know I was a bit of a a grafter when I was young and I, I I'd work I'd work washing up in a pub I'd you know I'd be selling I remember I, I had doing like random marketing jobs I just always you know if I had time I'd be working and I'd just do stuff and you know try and get money and it's no weirdly no different now you know i wear i wear several different hats um and do several different things and i think i'd be lost if i did it if i didn't have that
1: <laughs> well coming on to one of those other hats that you wear is pathways to property which um yeah you know has been going a long time and um just briefly explain to anyone that isn't aware and i think you know a lot of our listeners are in in the real estate uh, environment, so I'm sure they've come across it. But if they haven't, just you know, what does Pathways to Property do? That you and obviously I should say that you're you're the chair of that.
0: Yes, no, yeah, um, yeah. Very very fortunate to to be that. You know, I took over the chairmanship from a chap called Alan Frogger uh, four or five years ago, and Alan was the really kind of spearheaded this um, this initiative uh, when it started in 2012. Um, I'm very fortunate to have been part of the, the you know part of the project since we started it um but it it pathways is a you know it's an initiative to really try and um raise the level of diversity and representation across the kind of real estate industry um and the view is yeah the the aim for us is to focus on pipeline and getting younger people in so that we can affect change that way rather than kind of through any other way um i think i've always been i remember reading various reports from big consultancies back in the day you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago who were like, right, oh, you know, by 20, whatever, 2020, we will have 50% of our board will be female. 50% of our board will be non-white. And you're like, okay, great. But, you know, when you look at the the pool that they're going to get that from, it's not very diverse. So they sort of set these targets, pat themselves on the back and go and have lunch. and But actually they're never going to meet them because there's nobody there to actually meet them. And and nobody wants to be given a job because they are they fit some diversity profile, right? You don't want to get a job because you're the only woman who, you know, uh, interviewed for it, or you were the only Brown guy who interviewed for it. That's not, that's not where we want to get to. So pathways came around. It's an initiative that was um, put together by the Reading real estate foundation, which I got involved with when I was at Reading uni. Um, And it was supported by British land, gave us half a million pounds to get going, which was amazing really, because a lot of these things just really struggle for cash and, and resource. Um, And it was really built around uh, a a summer school that we run every year for 16 to 17-year-olds to teach them about real estate and careers and things like that. Fast forward this year, we're on our 11th summer school. Um, We've now had nearly over a 1,000 students come through, uh, of which about 25% are either working or studying in property. But today, the summer school is less academic. It's not about teaching you what is property, what is planning. It's more about developing soft skills um, it's more about creating an awareness of, um, of the industry and what the industry does and, and helping the, the, the students build their network and their understanding of where they want to be in real estate. It's about giving them connections, um, giving them role models. Um, and today, you know, we, uh, we provide mentoring schemes, we provide work experience, we provide an online course that students can do to get a certificate to say they have participated in that, that they can put on their UCAS form. Um we provide full financial support to anyone who comes on the uh summer school who wants to study in real estate at any university in the UK, not just reading um uh what else and that's that's sort of that's kind of it really it's kind of a whole ecosystem and now it's become this kind of family, you know as well we've had. Some of the students that came to us, you know, 11, 12 years ago are now 28, 27, 28 and working in the industry and helping younger students. And it's so nice to sort of see that my aim with it is that I want to be I'd love to see some of the students that came on the original summer schools, the first ones be on boards and in you know leadership positions that when i that would be the day i know that that would be the day that i resign and i leave because <laughs> i know that we've we've achieved what we're going to achieve you know that's that's when we've known that we really sort of um we've been we've affected change um when you know really the voices that we've nurtured all the way through are the voices of influence um and the whole thing about this is giving everyone a, a voice at the table i don't it's not about suppressing any voices it's about raising other voices sort of up so that there's an equal opportunity to to be heard at the table that that's what it is and i think we we as businesses and industry and not just our industry and our businesses a lot of businesses and industry you know the biggest risk is is monoculture and and lack of diversity of thinking you know when you, when you have those kind of, you know, those kind of mono thoughts and the same kind of people, you know, thinking the same thing, you, you don't spot opportunities. and You certainly don't spot risks. <laughs> um, so, you know, in any business of any size, it's really important to, to have, to have different types of person and thinking in there so that you can be as prepared for the future from a positive and a negative perspective as you can really.
1: So how do we get young people excited about a career in property?
0: Um, fantastic podcast like this, Gareth. This is this <laughs> probably the, the way to do it. I think, look, for me, it, it's, it's um, demystifying the, the language a little bit, talking a bit more in plain English about what we do, making sure it's not the best kept secret out there. Um, I think it's getting more role models out there. Um, getting people, you know, within the industry, to be happy to kind of raise their profiles a bit and get out there talking and meeting people. Um, it, there's no overnight fix to it, um, but it's. I think there's so many people in the industry who I meet, and I'm just like, wow, you've been an incredible role model. And they don't have the confidence, or they don't think they don't see themselves as a role model. And I'm like, no, absolutely. You know, you you, you would you'd be fantastic. So go go to schools and you know talk to people in your local community be proud of what you do you know um it's uh you yeah, know sometimes people go oh, i'm a surveyor I'm very sorry you know? and it's like don't be don't be sorry it's it's a it's a really interesting career you know it's given me so much um you know working working and studying in real that I never would have thought I' would have done all the things that i've done and you know I'm, i like to think i've still got a lot a lot more to do um so it's just through that kind of that communication and talking and you know marketing ourselves in a in a more positive and better way um that i think we can do that and so yeah linkedin's a great tool social media is a great tool you know kids kids use a lot of these um these tools but what they really want is just to meet people who talk really positively about the the industry. And so sometimes, yeah, I think the best way for people to do it is genuinely to go to, go go back to your old schools, go to the schools that your kids go to, go to the schools that you pass every day on the walk to the station, you know, um, because they're always schools are always crying out for role models. You know, they they want real people to come in and talk to their kids, and um, and that's the most impactful thing I think people can do.
1: I read that you said that parents don't see real estate as a proper profession.
0: Um, <laughs> that's true. <Yeah. laughs>
1: um, Do did, did your parents think you had a proper job? Cool.
0: I think my dad thinks I'm still a mortgage broker. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I never was a mortgage broker. <laughs> I think that's just it. The, the perception is that, you know, you're either, I think I wrote in that article that you're either Phil or Kirsty or you work for Foxton's um, <laughs> if you work in property. And, and I've had that feedback from lots of parents of kids who, you know, they they say oh well, we want to come on this property summer school and they're like oh really why don't you go and do the engineering one or the law one or the you know the investment banking one it's not a proper career and it's because people don't understand the level of diversity of the career you can have in here and yeah the reality is is that we all live work play you know in in real estate and 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 if it. I always say this to sixteen-year-olds when I, we go on the summer school. I'm like, "How do you think any of this exists? Do you think, you know, on the seventh day they made real estate? It's sort of, you know, it's uh, um, it, you know, this exists because of people, and and everything is man-made, you know, um, and everything comes from the ideas, and there's no reason why the, why these young people can't be involved in in shaping that into the into the future. So, yeah, um. Yeah, I, I refrain. I, I won't ask my parents what they think I do, but they're <laughs> they know it's something to do with property.
1: Um and you're talking about obviously um you know improving the level of diversity in in real estate in a you know, profession. Do you think we still have a problem in the industry with a with lack of diversity, particularly at senior level?
0: Um to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. I think you know uh, I think I don't want to be negative on this because I think there's so much positive that's been that, that has happened, so much positivity and so much change that's happened. And I think, you know, lot especially in the last four or five years, lots of boards and senior leadership teams have turned the mirror on themselves and recognized that they, you know, they need to have more a more representative group of people around them. Um I think some know what that means better than others and what that, what that is for them. And there's no like there's no quick fix and there's no one size fits all type fix to it. It depends what your business is and what you want to achieve and what you're doing. But I very rarely have conversations with people who go, no, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an issue. I think everyone re- recognizes it, but what's, what's really heartwarming about it and really en- it gives me the energy is that people are genuinely want to do something about it and want to open the the doors up to a more representative group of, of, of thinking. Um, and so yeah right the challenge the challenge is to to try and make sure that the pipeline that's coming through and the young people that are coming through into the industry are from a more representative background and and that people already in the industry are um open minded you know and and willing to 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 take on different views from people who are not necessarily their own um it, i've always made it really clear that i don't want I don't want people to chastise themselves and like, you know, whip themselves in the back and go, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm awful, you know, and this and that. It's like, that's not it at all. You know, for me, you know, it's, it's about feeling as humans. I think we feel the fear of what we don't know. Um, and we, you know, it's a bit like when you look at hiring and then the traditional way of hiring the people tend to hire people who are just like them because they feel safe right and that's a there's nothing wrong with that. that that that's human nature is what we do right but it's feeling that recognizing that and then maybe doing something different um it may be that the person who is you know if you're interviewing something the best person for that job is just like you that's absolutely fine but t- take an objective view of it do it consciously rather than kind of unconsciously um so look, it, it's definitely an issue. Are we the worst, you know, in real estate? Probably not. You know, you just got to look at politics. Maybe it's like, you know, it probably needs to be a bit more representative, but, you know, they're they doing that as well. And, you know, other sectors, I'm really fortunate that I get to talk to representatives from, you know, the world of finance, investment banking and, you know, law. We work a lot with the Sutton Trust who work a lot across this. So we get I get a really good view in of um, what other sectors are doing. And, you know, we're all coming from a low bar, right? but what is clear across all of these industries is that there is um progress and there's no silver bullet and i think if you look for a silver bullet you'll always fail because there isn't one there isn't one there um it's really just about leading by example and and trying to sort of change things sort of you know step by step gradually at things at a t- you know one thing at a time so
1: obviously we talked about pathways to property and you mentioned about the reading real estate foundation as well that the trustee of um yeah and and you've got lots of jobs, uh, <laughs> so you know you've only got so much time. But clearly, it's important to you. So why is it so important to you to to give back to the industry and to obviously in- make young people want to come into industry? What drives you to do that?
0: Yeah, I I, I, I genuinely don't know. I think it's just something that's part of part of me and my fibre and kind of who I am. I think I think I. You know, I look back on my early career and and I didn't have that many role models in the in the industry. You know, my role models growing up were my mate's older brothers a lot of the time. And that's kind of, you know, um, funny enough, I had a, a friend of mine came in to see me in the office the other day and I haven't seen him for a few years. Um, and I said to him, you're the reason I'm in real estate. And he said, well, and he was my girlfriend's older brother when I was about 16. And he got me, uh, he, he got me in to see... To go and have a coffee with um a chap who was running the uh at Savile's team in Chelmsford in whatever it was two thousand the year two thousand, and I, and after that I was like oh wow, property seems like something to you know to do and and so I said I blame you twenty four years ago you know <laughs> when, when I met you and I was seeing your sister it was quite it was really interesting so you know but it's amazing but it's amazing you know that we have those 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 kind of relationships endure but I think I think I've always been. Community is really important to me and family is really important to me. And I, and I just feel like, you know, I see I see my team as a family. I see the people I work with as, as family and friends. And, you know, I, I feel like you just want to do the best you can. And, and for me, bringing people through and, and maybe making sure that some young people don't have to struggle in the way that I struggled, I guess. I don't think... I know in some professions there's a mentality, well, I went through it so you can go through it and that will make you all hardened and stuff like that. I I kind of, maybe I understand that a little bit, but I'm a bit like, you know, I I do think, I just wish sometimes there there was somebody who could have given me a bit of a leg up um, or given me a roadmap or demystified some of the language for me in a safe environment. And that's kind of just what I want to provide. You know, the the, the kids that we work with, the young people we work with, we don't give anything to them on a silver platter, right? They still have to work for it. They still have to have the hunger and the drive, but we'll give them the, um, the environment where they can thrive uh, and, and make sure they don't have to worry about things like um, money and, and all sorts if they don't need to, but they still have to walk through those doors and they still have to, you know, still not an easy ride, but, um, yeah, I think it's just something. I think it's just part of who I am, really. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know. Maybe it's because I keep saying yes to everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, a topic that maybe we move on to something slightly different, but a topic that's very much in everybody's consciousness at the moment is climate change in real estate. You know, we're responsible for mm. for, for quite a bit of the perceived impact on on climate change. So I'm interested to find out whose responsibility do we think it is to change is it whether it's developer or or a tenant or an operator you know for making that change or perhaps you could give me an example of of someone that's leading real positive change in that area
0: yeah it's it's an interesting one i've i've recently just done a two-day course with the green building council um uh, all around kind of understanding a bit more about what we mean by ESG, um, and I guess, you know, climate change and, and and sustainability is is obviously a big part of that and fits more into the E. I suppose a lot of the stuff I do is on the S side of it, yeah. but you know, the the E side of it is just is is just as important, uh, and the G bit as well. Um, I mean, it, it's the 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 simple answer it is a collective responsibility, but somebody it needs to start somewhere. Um, And I think with all of these things, when it comes to change, change needs, there needs to be somebody who goes, right, I'm going to change. And they have the confidence to lead by example and people follow them. Um, You know, as human beings, we are sheep. (laughs) So, um, and we do, we follow each other. And so there needs to be somebody who kind of goes, right. You know, we're, we're going to do that. I think by and large capital seem you know has has grasped it and you know and you see now you know um investors who are looking to invest in any class asset class around around europe um are you know have very stringent kind of sustainability criteria that they need to meet and it's tough at the moment because it it narrows the pool of assets in which they can trade and buy and manage um because you know they don't meet those criteria and i think that know they want to lead in that and i think that's probably probably the right place to start in, in that sense um because you know money talks and they control the the checkbook so um you know they if they're if they're doing that then eventually sort of people will follow and it is interesting when you look at when i think about the conversations i have with developers you know where they're saying well okay well what does the capital want yeah, what do we mean by sustainable buildings? So they they're not now just building buildings and hoping that they can flog them into the market. They're kind of going, well, okay, well, you know, what do they want in terms of you know sustainability and, and ESG credentials and things like that, and how can we go and build that? Um, the the big question is, you know, will they pay for it? <laughs> um, and I and I think at the moment that answer is unclear, um, but is becoming clearer, um, I think, as we understand things. The the journey I think we're on at the moment, and my takeaway from the little I know about um, these things, we have some great ESG experts within college who I palm things off to who are much, much better, much more eloquent than me. But, you know, I think when, when change happens in any environment or anything, um, having an adopted language is really important, like a key reference point. So... I think what we're still trying to wait for at the moment is an understanding of what is the adopted language and sustainability that that everyone is going to conform to. That will give us the benchmark to know whether we're doing the right thing or not. You know, if if you look to if you talk to an investor today and say, you know, what is your what is your sustainability criteria, investor A will have a very different answer from investor B, and they will um, they will reference different criteria and other points you know um so i think i think it's a it's certainly moving forward but it's is definitely a challenging one but it seems to me that you know rather than saying who the responsibility should sit with i think at the moment you know i think capital has taken it upon themselves to say it sits with us um and you know we're going to try and drive that and and ultimately you know, that will pull investors, sorry, developers into into line It will pull, you know, the operating partners into line as well to, to sort of follow those rules. I don't think anyone knows what the right language is and the rules are just yet, but they're getting sort of narrowed down. And I think the other thing that we will start to try, if you think about the full circle and these things, I see things as circles rather than as kind of lines, is that if you look at behaviors within real estate, you know, I think we'll be driven a lot by that as well. So, for student accommodation or built rent or anything like that you know how are people living in the buildings and what's important to them and what are the behaviors that we're seeing and what are the behaviors that we can um we can influence and change to become more sort of sustainable so you know we're seeing this now around kind of energy consumption within buildings you know making sure that you know, rooms are metered you know individual student rooms weren't metered you know there wasn't spec into buildings even a couple of years ago but now you know we're seeing it now so that we can measure energy consumption and we can kind of and that sort of speaks to the behaviors of the the customers in the sense that we're gamifying it a little bit but also from a uh, investor perspective, we can have the transparency about it, you know, before we didn't have that level of transparency, so that's a real simple kind of win, you know, and technology will help us understand that and help us that as well, you know, seeing some really interesting sort of geospatial tools at the moment that allow you to track different levels of uh, consumption in different parts of your building, and you don't have to have it into the in the physical infrastructure of the building, you can kind of overlay it and map it, and they're they're really interesting tools. Um, so I think, you know, behaviours within buildings and capital will somewhat drive the the change in that.
1: Interesting. It's just a question
0: of how much it costs.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's... I spoke to an investor recently who um, commented about the appetite and availability of capital to get to net zero anytime soon in, in real estate. And their opinion was, and I want to get this right, even though I'm not quoting them directly, is that there isn't enough simply enough capital being plowed or available to be plowed into this into real estate in the UK to get to well the original target was to get to the C for EPC legislation but I think that was <laughs> that's changed since I yeah, wrote right. the question um but you know I do you think there's enough you know because we've seen the retrofit costs now are just crazy but then even build costs from new are crazy so do you think there's enough capital out there to meet those those ambitious targets?
0: Um, simply yes, but the reality is, is that, um, everyone does something differently. So, you know, if you put all the cat, if you on a purely binary basis, there is, there, there should be enough, right. But everyone does everything differently. And, and I think, you know, I, I've never, I've never spoken so much about geopolitics as I have in the last two years, you know, and, and that's, that's wildly worrying because I know nothing about, politics um you know but it's a huge whereas you know when we were doing re- risk matrices on funds 10 years ago yeah there was always a you know the threat polit- political change yeah fine tick box done you didn't really talk about it and then there'd be a general election every few years everyone would talk about it for a few months but now it's consistent right the level of you know black swan events as people call them or political big political upheavals and scandals and all this stuff and lack of clarity from policy makers and all this and just the rate of change i mean look at the housing um the ministry for housing you know we've had what 13 i think housing ministers in as many years i mean you know and it takes five months for them six months for them to get their feet under the desk and by the time they've done something you know they're, they're off into another job and so you know, we've just got no stability in that, and that's the real challenge with a lot of this. Is that, you know, what what we need in in a, in a world that will unlock the door to more capital is increased certainty and stability, um, and and that will come. That comes first from politics. Um, now, when I don't think we're ever going to have the level of stability that we've ever we've had in previous generations. I think we're always going to be. The rate of change technologically and uh, and and sort of demographically and everything is so quick now that you know we sort of we sort of pine after these days when we know we could just we had a we had a whatever government and they were you know we'd have total stability. I just don't think we're going to see that. Um, You look at all the different events around the world, but what we need is certainty around policy and and people not using climate change policy, housing policy, whatever it is, as political footballs. Um, and trying to sort of win, you know, win votes and putting in big things that we're never going to, we're never going to achieve, because it just, it just causes inertia. That's, that's the issue. Um, I think we all have the same common goal, we want to do the right thing. But putting in big kind of headline grabbing um, policies that are totally unachievable, just creates, you know, paralysis in, 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 a, in a business environment. And, and nobody wants to sort of see that we, we know, we know we need to go into it. We're going into a certain destination, but, you know, putting in unrealistic targets is, is just actually sets you back. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's certainly a, it's certainly a challenge, but capital definitely want to do the right thing, but they're all coming. They are generally all coming from different places as well. You know, globally, I think the recognition of ESG and ESG led capital, um, very much differs you know i'd say the europeans are probably you know probably much more in touch with wanting to deploy sustain money into sustainable buildings than potentially m- money coming from from asia pacific you know at this current time um i think the us is quite polarized um in terms of whether they believe in climate change or not and you know and that that feeds down into their kind of you know, businesses business decisions that are made in the market um that will change. That is dynamic, right? As we get more and more information and more and more data points. And um, but yeah, not not every pound, dollar, euro thinks the same. Is what I've learned in the last, in 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 my short career.
1: Okay, so we've come on to the quick fire round now, Paddy. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
0: Uh, this is a hard one. Um, and i'm gonna I'm gonna slightly give a political answer because I, I generally don't think there's anything that I would change. Um, it's slightly slightly I think it's I think it's just like stoic of me, but um, and not that I understand much about stoicism, but I, I, I wrote down something a while a while ago. He said you, you've got to ex- accept your surroundings for what they are. Um, you know, accept the things that you can't change and have the courage to change the things that you can um and the wisdom to know the difference so you know i and it was an interesting quote i, I heard on another podcast where he said are, you know are you are are you a summer or a winter kind of guy and he says i'm a dress for the weather kind of guy <laughs> you know and that's the so I, I don't i don't really i don't concern myself with things that i just can't change around about the world necessarily but i try to change the things within my own sphere that i can do and just sort of lead by example um, if they're gener- if you genuinely had to push me it would probably be around the kind of more of the you know the, the representation and inclusivity sort of agenda and just you know try try to make people slow down a little bit i think we i think we go too fast on everything and make you know and um uh, a, a boss of mine taught me this many years ago and i and my team hate me for saying this because I say it every day but you know it's genuinely slow down to speed up you know if we just slow down a little bit we could probably speed up if and i know that sounds really mad but it's totally true you know if you if we just stop being busy busy all the time we would achieve more
1: okay and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start
0: um don't wait for it to be perfect Cause it never is. Um, and that's just an excuse. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the biggest things that hold people back is perfectionism. Um, it will never be perfect. It will never be like you see it on LinkedIn or on dragon's Den or whatever it is, or in the books, you know, um, but don't be reckless, but don't, don't, you know, don't wait for that perfect moment because it never comes. You know, you've just got to, I've always taught myself that if I'm, 60 to 70 percent sure about something i'll i'll get on with it and i'll learn the rest on the way um and that's always you know um been proved to be valuable for me but i'm certainly not reckless and and kind of you know and i think that's the difference is that you know while well, I say to people don't wait for it perfect don't don't make reckless choices you know really think about what you want to do but honestly get on with it um you know we have i think and I remember listening to when you were talking with Joe about this, you know, is transferable skills are really what it's all about. You know, I think sometimes people don't recognize that they have transferable skills. They're trying to be too binary about it. Um, you know, they're sitting there kind of going, well, you know, I can't, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this job selling cups and I've only sold sources, you know, it's like, well, you've sold, right? <laughs> so if you can sell sources, you can sell cups, you know, so you know, don't be so don't be so abstract, so so binary about it. Be a bit more abstract and sort of, you know, look at trans- what transferable skills you've got.
1: And what's going to be your next big change?
0: Um, again, I don't know. I, I've, I, I tend not to think too far ahead. Weirdly, I mean, maybe actually that's just probably. A, I, I, I don't get burdened too much by it. Um, one of the things I've learned in the last few years, and I think. This certainly, when you have children, I think this you you, just the way you do life changes, right? It has to. Um, I've tried to be more present in what I do and enjoy what I'm doing and take that in, and that's advice I give to all of my younger colleagues as well. Is that you know if they might be doing a a stint in the valuation department and they hate it, and I'm like, look, just be present, take it all in, because you won't be there forever, and other stuff will come around the corner, and you never know. You know, most of the opportunities that have come in my life have come through just having an open mind and meeting people serendipitously um, either on Twitter or wherever and and you know and so if you try to plan that too much and say that you I think you miss out on on opportunities and 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 experiences along the way so yeah I don't know the big the biggest change for me that's happened the, the, the biggest change that's going on at the moment is trying to work out how to get one child to school and one child to nursery with two working parents and then try and do the pickups that's that's the biggest thing i'm trying to work out at the moment
1: well if you find the solution let me know uh, because i think
0: (laughs) think there's a few of
1: us struggling with that Uh, honestly uh, and always the final question and the one that people worry about most is if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to on the podcast who would it be
0: uh, well, you've you've had such a great a great lineup recently, uh, and some very kind people on who recommended me. I think the two people I, I think are fascinating um in the sector to to speak with. I think one would be Chris Holloway, um who I work with at um, at GSA. Um, you know, Chris is based in Madrid and is sort of leading. Yeah, GSA kind of um global kind of expansion you know at the moment and yeah man of a man of many many languages and you know and and again doesn't come from the kind of traditional investment and property background so you know isn't burdened by our by by the sort of silos that we kind of try and put ourselves into he's he's definitely fast he's really fascinating guy and a good friend um and uh, a chap called uh, Vedran Kosarich, um, who's uh, works for Empiric uh, students, I think is, you know, Ved, Ved was my first client when I started in property at the age of 20-odd. Um, and weirdly, we were at the same universities together, but we've just, you know, we've known each other throughout my whole career, and he, he's, he spent time at Unite, and he's now at Empiric, and again, just somebody who I think is he's, is. He's, thinks differently and doesn't fit the usual mold. Um, but just has brilliant kind of, you know, intellect and and kind of hunger and drive, um, you know, and a good good person to spend time around. So I think they'd be, they'd be really, really good guys to speak to. Great. Well, uh, I'll certainly um,
1: tag them in the posts and see if we can get to get episodes recorded. Um, Paddy, I just want to say thanks for obviously joining me on the podcast. Hopefully we managed to cover some, some different topics. Um, and I, I honestly don't know how you fit it all in. Everything that you've done, you know, when I started researching again, it's um, I normally put some time aside, and uh, I had to double it. I think to go through everything that you, you've been doing throughout your career, it's, you know, it's uh, it's crazy. I'd
0: I'd say that it's testament to the teams that I've worked with. It's not a it, no, by no means is a kind of personal achievement. It's you know, it's it, this is all I've. Over- great teams around me and still do and you know and it, everything i've ever done has been a massive team effort so you know um it's a testament for to all the people i've worked with
1: right and um and yeah some of the things you're doing obviously and i've been doing for a long time with with pathways to property and other things are uh, you know more power to you to uh, to get those things going so um so yeah thank thanks you. very much
0: no thank you